If you'll please turn with me to Genesis 38, or it's printed on two pages in your worship guide today, and it's a weird one. If I had to guess, I'd say most, if not all of you, have never heard this passage preached. Sandwiched in between, in the middle of the story of Joseph, between him being sold off as a slave and him fleeing from Potiphar's wife and then being imprisoned for it. So it seems like an interruption. 38 interrupts the Joseph narrative. And we often don't know what to do with the content either. You'll see here in a second that it's pretty uncomfortable. has a lot of sexual content in it. And it describes things that you probably wouldn't guess are mentioned in the Bible. But I think it's important to point out that the Bible doesn't shy away from these things. It touches every part of human experience. And when it mentions sexual content and sin, it's not HBO. It doesn't glorify it. It's not crass or gratuitous. Instead, its aim is not arousal, but redemption. It has a redemptive purpose, even as it touches on these things. So why is it here? The book of Genesis can be divided into these sections that begin with, and these are the generations of so-and-so, generations of heaven and earth. Um, Noah, Seth, Abraham, so on and so forth. And the back half of this book, chapters 37 to 50, are the generations of Jacob. So the question is, how will God keep his promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob, where salvation will come through this family? So we're going to see this morning how the line of Judah, which isn't in a good spot, will continue. So we're going to take it in sections this morning as we kind of follow the story arc. So let's begin by reading verses 1 to 11. So hear God's word. And it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we come to you thankful that you reveal yourself to us. We come to passages like this, and it's easy to acknowledge we need your help. God, we ask that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear you, that you would work in us, that we might be convicted of our sin, that we might see your goodness and beauty and grace and be drawn ever nearer to you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, 
after this escalating exchange of these quips, Draco Malfoy tells Hermione Granger, no one asked your opinion, you filthy mudblood. Couple gasps and then silence. It's not a word that you say. Malfoy has gone too far. It's this derogatory or kind of even racist term for uh, a witch or wizard who is born from muggles or non-magic parents. Their blood isn't pure. It's mixed. It's muddy. And there are some, like Malfoy, who put a lot of stock in their being pure bloods, of being able to trace the magical lines of their families really far back because that somehow makes them superior. Physical lines do matter. We'll see that in this passage. The promises God made were to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that he would be their God and they would be his people, that through his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. But doesn't the spiritual matter as well? Wasn't Abraham justified by faith? Isn't Judah's line more like the one we shouldn't talk about? Like Bruno from Encanto? As we walk through this passage, that is about, it's about the line of Jacob through Judah. It's not clean. It's not comfortable. We're going to ask, how will God bring about his promises through this mess? And if he can do it for them, can he do it for us? And the thing is, we can't just do better. We can't just be better. We can't just follow good examples and all will go swell. Right? That's a challenge for us as we look at narratives, especially in the Old Testament. We often see them as these moral tales of examples to follow, that there's usually like one character that we're supposed to be like, to emulate, right? No. It's made clear in this passage, who would you want to emulate? Judah? No. Tamar? Doubt it. Judah's sons, maybe if you want struck dead. But a passage like this actually shows us how we are to approach these narratives, how we should actually look at them, not as primarily tales of moral examples, but primarily of our needs for God's grace to break through into our lives and for him to be faithful to his promises. He's the hero of the stories. And the conflict in this story is what will happen with the line of Judah, how will God bring about his purposes in this messed up situation? So in these, we begin in these first 11 verses. They set the stage. Right? They put us in this situation by showing the conflict, by showing that Judah's family is just this sinful mess. They are a wreck. Judah, who the chapter before had the idea to sell Joseph into slavery, to put a little green in his pockets instead of just killing him off. What does he do? First thing he does is he separates from his brothers. And he associates with and is influenced by the nations around him. He befriends Hira. He marries a Canaanite woman, which is never a good thing in Genesis. And he has three boys. His eldest son, Ur, grows up and he finds him a wife, Tamar. She's probably a Canaanite as well. Now, we don't know what Ur did, but it says he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord put him to death. So Judah tells his secondborn, Onan, to perform the duty of a brother-in-law. This is a little bit foreign to us. Seems weird. But this is what we call a Leverite marriage. It comes from the Latin word levir, which just means brother-in-law. 
And this was the law of the land at that time in most of the ancient Near Eastern cultures. You even see Jesus alludes to it when he says, this woman married the brother, the brother, the brother, the brother, whose spouse will they be in heaven, right? So you're missing the point. But that's still even ongoing then. This was, it's codified then later in Deuteronomy 25. And what was really important at the time was carrying on your family line. And then this also served to help protect the widow. So children were viewed, rightfully so, as a blessing, not as a burden, as we're often told today. And this happened especially through firstborns, who would get a double portion of the family inheritance. They carried on the line, which mattered. So a brother-in-law would marry his brother's widow, and their first son would carry on that line, carry on the line of the deceased brother. So that's what that Leverite marriage is. That's what his duty was. So because of this, Onan knew that a child wouldn't be his. So he would act like he's doing his duty, right? To all the world, it looks like he's doing what he's supposed to do. But he would use this method of birth control described in verse 9 there to deprive his brother and Tamar of their line. Now he's the oldest living son. He gets the double inheritance. And he, he'll have sex with Tamar. He's fine with that. He'll look, live up to what the external um, facade is supposed to be like. But he doesn't want her to have a child. Effectively cutting her off and erasing his brother's branch from the family tree. Murdering his brother's future. How does the Lord view this? What he did what was, was evil in the sight of the Lord and he put him to death. So Tamar is a widow twice over now. She's the most vulnerable class at that time. There's no inheritance. There's no income. There's no legacy. There's no hope. You are on your own. You will die off. Judah tells her to go and remain a widow. Stay in that condition at her dad's house until his youngest son grows up. He gives her the, don't call me, I'll call you. But Judah's not concerned with Tamar, even though as the husband's father, he has this responsibility to provide for her, to care for her. Instead, he actually blames her for his son's death. See that there. She's the one who was married to a wicked first son and then was sexually used with no concern for her by the second, both of whom the Lord killed, right? But Judah thinks it must be her fault. He doesn't want the same thing to happen to his third son. Must be that they're getting with her. Definitely not his boys, right? That's how parents talk to teachers these days. Couldn't be my kid. What are you doing? And he doesn't release her to try and remarry, even though there's low probability of that happening. But at least that would have given some hope. He maintains this facade of being the caring, loving father-in-law who's just raising his last son so then he can provide for her, then give her what he needs. But it's a lie, He leaves her in this vulnerable state of widowhood with no intent to help her. Hide her away. Move on. So Judah and his family are a sinful mess. (laughs) You just walk through it. Disregards his people to live among the Canaanites. First son just struck dead. Second son, he's so selfish, he'd rather have his brother's line die off and be wiped out than produce an heir. He still wants to look good. But he doesn't want to provide. He'll use a young woman for sex to maintain that facade. But he's killed as well. 
Judah, he's blaming the victim for his son's deaths, even though they're wicked. He lies to her, hides her away, leaves her as a widow, even though he's responsible for her. And then there's Tamar, this young woman who's married to the eldest son of a wealthy family, which is a privilege. It actually gave her rights. She has the right to be the matriarch of the line of Judah. Should be a good place to be. But what does she get? A wicked husband who's struck dead. Can't imagine that was a good marriage. A second husband who uses her for sex but doesn't want to give her her rights. And then a father-in-law who's supposed to protect her but does the opposite. These hit pretty close to home today, don't they? They strike some of the nerves that are pretty relevant today. Sexual sin and abuse, lies, neglect, misuse of power and position, injustice, marginalization, the worst outcomes of patriarchy, right? So how will God's grace break through this unrighteousness? Because of the sinfulness of our hearts in this world, the truth is that I think all of us can at times relate to being the perpetrator as well as the victim. To be the one sinning and the one being sinned against. But more often than not, I think we tend to fall on one of the two sides. And this passage speaks to both. So wherever you are this morning, this passage has something to say to you. No matter where you are, you need God's grace to break through into your life. He is not oblivious or unconcerned with our sin. He's already struck two sons dead for it. Neither is he oblivious or unconcerned when we're sinned against, as we'll ultimately see Tamar provided for. So now the stage is set. Judah's family is this sinful mess, and Tamar, the rightful matriarch, of this line, this line of promise has essentially been cast away by Judah. So let's see what happens next. Let's look at verses 12 to 24. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, 
let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. So time passes. Judah's wife dies. Shelah grows up. And Tamar's still living the widow's life with her father. So Judah's going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. It's that time of year. It'd be like this big Canaanite, Canaanite party where they're all getting together, shearing the sheep, eating, drinking, having a grand old time. Kind of a Mardi Gras, if you will. It's kind of another sign of his assimilation into the culture around him. So now that Tamar has seen that she has been lied to, that she has been hidden away, he, she is being deprived of her rights, she sets this plan into action. Right? She It's a bunch of really quick action verbs in the Hebrew. She takes off her widow's garments. She puts on her veil. She wraps herself. She sits. She knows what she's doing. And notice that this whole plan hinges on what Judah will do. She's been left a celibate widow when she should be married to Shelah. And Judah is meanwhile known as one who will sleep with prostitutes. And her plan hinges on the idea that He'll want to sleep with her if she sits by the road. So Judah comes up to her, thinking she's a prostitute, and just says, let me have sex with you. Turns out she was right. Her plan is spot on. They negotiate, and he says, I'll pay you a young goat, but he doesn't have it with him. So in the meantime, I'll take your signet, which would be like your cylinder staff stamp that you'd mark wax with. It shows that this is who you are. It identifies you. Uh, the cord is the cord that it would be attached to. And then his staff that everyone would carry with him. And these would have been easily recognizable. It'd be like now having your wallet left. Maybe your wallet and your phone has your pictures and then your ID in it. So he leaves those with her. And then they have sex and she conceives. Then she goes back to being a widow. So Judah goes on about his business. He sends his friend with the goat can't find him. There's no prostitute here. Says, well, we tried. Leave it. Even those, those, those things are more valuable than the goat. Says, just let her have them. We don't want people to hear that we're looking and that I left them. I don't want to be laughed at. It would be embarrassing. It wouldn't be good for me. So let's just leave it alone. We'll keep going on about our lives. So three months later, Judah's told that Tamar is pregnant by immorality. The word immorality is the same root as when he thought she was a prostitute earlier. So Judah's indignant, and his response is, it's only two Hebrew words, it's bring, burn. Right? He's totally oblivious to this double standard. He can sleep with prostitutes all he wants, but the daughter-in-law that he has lied to and is failing to provide for should be burned for being a prostitute. And the punishment's extreme. Burning people wasn't common. That's not the way that they killed people. It's saved for like the worst of the worst. So you can imagine Judah's been just harboring this, just nursing this, the loss of his two sons. It's her fault. It is bad. He hates her. And now she dishonors him by getting pregnant? The nerve. Now the climax of the story Verses 25 and 26. As she was being brought out, 
she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. It's pretty dramatic. She's being brought out to the fire and sends this message to the father-in-law. It's super public. Right? He's worried about getting laughed at. But everyone immediately knows that it's Judah. She pulls out his ID and said, he's the one that did it. How much more humiliating is this for Judah than what would have happened before? And if she's going to be thrown in this fire... He's the other guilty party who should join her. So how are we supposed to think about Tamar? Right? Is what she did okay? Wouldn't it be better if God gave us his evaluation of her action like he did the two brothers, right? It was evil on the side of the Lord. He doesn't say that. That's what happens a lot of times in these narratives, The thing is, we're supposed to know God's law and know God's character so that as we read these, we actually are supposed to make these assessments, that we're supposed to discern what's happening, whether things are good or bad. We're supposed to make these evaluations. And so one of the critiques you hear, or maybe even a critique that you have of the Bible, is that it condones X, Y, Z because it talks about it, whether that's slavery, prostitution, polygamy, whatever. But that's not necessarily true. That's not how it's supposed to be read. They're talked about because they happen in our fallen world. And the Bible isn't this neat and tidy false version of reality. It's real. We're supposed to make evaluations of these things by knowing what God calls us to. But what is interesting is that Tamar here isn't condemned by the passage. If anyone is in the right, she is. She's pursuing justice. Right? She's going after what God says is rightfully hers. She's the victim, and she's even vindicated by Judah here. And notice that it's not the sex part that Judah says is the worst. He says that the worst thing he did was not giving her his son Shelah, depriving her of her right, ripping away her hope of a future. In our culture, conservatives often think sexual sin is the worst, but that's the evaluation here. Perpetuating injustice against her is worse. Right? Isn't that what we want to see in our world is justice? It's the cry of the younger generations, especially if your version of the gospel doesn't care about justice, they don't want it. But the gospel does care about justice. God cares about justice. This passage cares about justice. Now, widowhood doesn't play the same role today as then where widows were the most vulnerable, where they were the easiest to deprive of justice. But we see comparable things around us. See, racism is very much a real and ongoing problem in our world. There are very much double standards around men and women still today. 
There are issues with them, but the Me Too and Church Too movement are exposing real things that are happening. Real things that have been ongoing. A lack of empathy and care for immigrants, for sojourners, is a real problem. Even as we debate laws and how to enforce them. Where is compassion for those who are vulnerable? Talking like this, I must be a liberal, right? But social injustice, what's perpetrated against Tamar, is something God cares deeply about. He struck Onan dead for it. This is the first time a widow is mentioned in the Bible. But if you keep reading through, it comes up over and over and over again. And other people are included with them. Orphans, sojourners, these people who don't have a place in society, who have no power, who are easy to take advantage of. Just, I mean, one example, Deuteronomy 27, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. Right? Justice matters to God. And those who are most vulnerable, most marginalized, are the ones God especially points out that we need to care for and protect. That we actually have a duty to care for and protect. It matters to God. But at the same time, it doesn't justify sin. Look at Judah's declaration. It's brilliant how it happens here. It doesn't say she is righteous. It says she is more righteous than I. See that? It's not absolute. It acknowledges that she sinned, and that's wrong. But it does mitigate her sin. She shouldn't have done what she did, but Judah's sin is worse. Right? We just finished going through Hosea, and there's a verse that alludes to this, if you think I'm just making this up. Hosea 4.14 says, I will not punish your daughters when they play the whore, nor your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go aside with prostitutes and sacrifice with cult prostitutes. See, it's honest about the women's sin. They play the whore. They commit adultery. Those things deserve punishment, right? It doesn't negate that, but it's mitigated. It says, I won't punish them because of what the men have done. See, this matters to God. Do you see that? Do you believe that? Are you okay just setting it aside and not looking at the plight of others? Are you compassionate toward them or just concerned with yourself? That you can get yours. But it's not only about justice. Right? The gospel is not a social gospel. It cares about justice because God is just and cares about justice. It does not say like our culture does now that once you've done these things, you're done. You're canceled. There's no hope for you. With God, there is always hope. Instead, it also calls us to conversion, to see our sin, to confess it, and to turn from it and be reconciled to God and to others. Dane Ortland wrote Gentle and Lowly, a fellow PCA pastor, um, also wrote this. He said, a penitent murderer goes to heaven. 
an impenitent orphanage founder goes to hell. That may offend you, but anything else is works righteousness. All our bad does not make us harder to save, and all our good does not make us easier to save. What saves us is Christ. And all we contribute is honesty, admitting we are sinners and casting ourselves on Him. That's what we see with Judah, isn't it? When Tamar tells him to identify his things, the word means more than just recognize. It's not just see that it's yours. It's saying see them, discern their meaning, see yourself. And by God's grace, breaking through this man who has not done one honorable or righteous thing, he sees himself. He sees his sin and he owns it. You are more righteous than I. I deprived you of justice. But his repentance goes all the way, even to the sexual sin. Notice, and he did not know her again. There's a change there. This is a turning point for Judah. From selling Joseph into slavery the chapter before to everything in this, to then stopping the sexual sin. And then the next time Judah shows up, the next time he really plays a role, they're in Egypt now. There's the famine. And they go, and they're before his brother Joseph. They don't know it's Joseph. But Joseph takes Benjamin, right? Rachel's only other son, while Judah's the son of Leah. Some animosity there. Takes him. And Judah pleads with Joseph. Says, take me instead. I will give up my life for his. For his good and for my father's. Judah is changed. He sees his sin and guilt and is transformed. How do you respond when your sin is exposed? Whether by the Holy Spirit in your own conscience, by others privately, or even potentially in a public way like this, do you ignore it? Do you double down, justify why what you did is okay? Why it's not that big of a deal? They did this, it's fine. Or will you recognize that you're not righteous and turn from it? See your need for forgiveness, your need for grace, and cling to Jesus, the only one who is righteous. The one who took our sin, that we might be made righteous like him. The one who died like the brothers, so that justice might be done. And at the same time, we could receive mercy and grace. This is embarrassing for Judah, yet it brings about his redemption. As much of a scumbag he's been his whole life, there's hope. When it's exposed, he doesn't try to hide, he doesn't justify it, he owns it. He sees his sin for what it is and is changed. Will you do the same? Judah's family was a sinful mess. But through even more sin, God graciously broke through and worked justice and righteousness and redemption. Even through the sin, he brings about his purposes. 
Look at the kind of falling action and resolution in verses 27 to 30. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. And afterward his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Just a simple, uncomplicated labor birth story there. Those things aren't supposed to happen if you didn't know. But we can see ourselves in Judah and in Tamar, in our brokenness, in our need. Are we too far gone? Can God break through and make something of us yet? Can he use us yet? We might think we're too sinful or too damaged or both for God to reach us. That there are others. Maybe he could save them. We're just filthy mudbloods. Maybe those pure bloods are right. They're better than us needy and sinful folk. But I agree with Hagrid's assessment. That's Cod's wallop. Dirty blood. Why there isn't a wizard alive today that's not half blood or less. may seem like a weird passage to preach this morning, right? But it fits with Advent. Talk about darkness and the coming light that we're waiting for. It's dark, yet light breaks through here at the end that through Judah's sin, that through Tamar's prostitution, through this incestuous union comes the son who breaks through. So Perez means, that's breach in the ESV, breaks through the unexpected firstborn of Tamar that will carry on the line of Judah, the one from whom the scepter shall not pass, of whom we read in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez the father of Hezron. God used this sinful relationship to bring about the birth of his son, Jesus Christ. God makes used and abused Tamar, one of the grandmothers of our Savior. And he's not ashamed of it. He doesn't hide it away. Portray this pure and righteous bloodline. Instead, he does the opposite. Ancient genealogies do not include women in them. But Jesus' does. And he doesn't include the easier ones. There's no Sarah, no Rebecca. Instead, who does he include? Four women. Starting with Tamar. None of whom you would expect. Ones you'd hide away if you were writing it. But that's not what he does. He says, this is my family. These are my roots. They weren't too far gone to be changed or too filthy to be used for my purposes. He says, I'm a mudblood who came to save mudbloods. That through Judah and Tamar will come the Savior. The one who is not more righteous, 
But who is truly righteous? The one who doesn't need us to pretend we're better than we are or something we aren't. The one who broke through on that first Christmas morning that we might know redemption. No matter where you are, he is not beyond reach for you and you are not too far gone for him to save. Remember that and go to him this Advent season.